On this prequel episode, we've got our fan poll follow-up for The Handmaiden. We're learning about Kurt Vonnegut and previewing Slapstick of Another Kind. Hello and welcome back to the Film is Lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. Prequel episode. We have all the sections, so we're going to get right into it with our patron shoutouts. We have one new patron this week, a returning patron, and you will find out why momentarily at the $15 Academy Award winning level. And this patron is, I had to come back when I heard that I got dethroned as your name change patron. So apparently that other name change patron is a different yeah. slash new name change patron and not the other name change patron. Now we have two name change patrons. Yes. Slash three because Shelby changes. Right. But Shelby's always Shelby's name always says Shelby. Yes. It usually says almost. Yeah. Pretty much exclusively says Shelby. So we know it's Shelby. Whereas these people, we don't know. It could be anybody. <laughs> uh, so thank you for signing on. I had to come back when I heard I got dethroned as your name change patron. And for joining the list of our Academy Award winners, and they are Paul, Kat Ensminger, Ben Wilcox, Ian from Wine Country, Catching Up on the Backlog, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Eli Young's Gratch, Just Gratch, Shelby Says Pre-Order, Monsters and Mayhem, which I believe is a collection of stories that she has published in, or will yes. be published in when it comes out. Yes. So there you go. Look up Monsters and Mayhem. Uh, you can look for Shelby. I think it's at Shelby Searman on Twitter. I believe and that's right. Yeah. I think she has a pen. Also, Shelby, if you want to put the link below this episode, there you that's go. totally fine. Go for it. Uh, v Frank, I had to come back when I heard that I got dethroned as your name change patron and Alina Starkov. So thank you all so very much for supporting us at the $15 level. You are all the best. All right, let's hear what people had to say about The Handmaiden. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like... Uh, your opinion, man. All right. So I think I got everyone's comments. Um, I was still adding stuff this afternoon. So if I missed your comment, slightly short turnaround. Yeah, we had a, a, a little bit of a shorter turnaround on this one. But on Patreon, we had two votes for the movie and zero for the book. Ben Wilcox, as uh, the patron who requested this episode, mm. said, Thanks for taking my recommendation. I first encountered the book via the BBC adaptation and quite enjoyed it. Then I heard about the Korean movie, and that really piqued my interest. My day job is as a Japanese translator, and I've also been working on learning Korean, so this adaptation was right up my alley. I was also really curious about how they'd handled it, since the book is so specific to its setting. It's not just a modern novel set in Victorian England. It really seems like it's trying to be a lost Victorian novel, using all the language and dramatic tropes of the time period. The baby's switched at birth thing is straight out of Dickens. It's almost like the author wanted it to be something a lesbian Bronte sister might have written, but then been unable to publish. I wondered, before watching the movie, how those sorts of melodramatic story beats would work in an entirely different setting. Ultimately, I think they made the right call by dropping the entire Mrs. Sexby plot. That particular twist felt like the weakest link in the story, and I didn't really care for the idea that Sue's nobility shone through the grime of London, or that Mrs. Sexby's bad blood came through in Maud. I think I prefer the movie's choice to shift the focus to the women getting one over on, on gentlemen slash the count, even if that wouldn't really work in the Victorian style of the original. I do think the movie put too much focus on the fate of the count rather than on Suki and Hideko's escape. 
their triumph feels a little glossed over in comparison to the Count's resolution. I also wish the movie had done more with its fascinating setting. Korea under Japanese rule is a great setting for intrigue, though I did love the decision to make the uncle a traitor to his people. Overall, I think he was a stronger villain in the movie. In the end, I voted for the movie. As much as I enjoyed the book, uh, melodramatic slash romantic Victorian literature is not my favorite genre, and I think the movie made a lot of interesting choices in how it deviated from its source material, not to mention the beautiful acting and cinematography. Thanks for the great episode. Uh, the one thing I wanted to comment on that I actually agree with, um, or I would say actually, but that I agree with is the note about the movie kind of shortchanging Hideko and Suki's ending mm-hmm. slightly. I mean, that is the ending ending, like it's the last scene. Yeah. But we, we see them reunite from a distance and then we cut and we do the whole scene, like the whole, all of this with the count. And it feels like the true climax of the film almost. Yeah, I would agree with And then we kind that. of go back to almost like a little denouement, you know, like of them sailing mm-hmm. away on the ship. It, I don't disagree that it feels slightly skewed in a weird way when the focus has been so clearly on the two of them to then sort of shift. I didn't mind it necessarily. I still enjoyed the way it all played out, but I do see what he's saying in that regard. Yeah, no, I agree with you. On Facebook, we had uh, one vote for the book and one listener, um, and you'll see in a minute with this comment, but uh, who voted for the movie initially. And then I said we would, we would have them, we would let them vote for, Uh, not being able to decide like I did. But Adam said, I completely agree with Katie's rationale for it being a tie and would vote the same way. If I had to pick one, though, I think I enjoy the movie more. I'm not sure if it's because I enjoy the setting and the ending more in the film or if it's because I first saw it in 2017 as a double feature with Julia DeCornow's Raw and the experience stuck with me. Either way, if I'm not allowed to call it a tie, I think I'd take the film over the book. Um, but I commented and said, we can call it a tie. be a tie. Yeah. There you go. On Twitter, we had five votes for the movie and three for the book. Shelby says pre-order Monsters and Mayhem. Um, uh, it came at us with some information about an element mm. of the book that mm-hmm. we discussed. She said, so I know about baby farming because of true crime. Hmm. In the Victorian era, when unwed parents needed to hide their newborn to avoid ruining their reputation, they would pay a baby farmer to care for them with the understanding that they would either come back for the child when they could support them or the baby would be adopted to someone else for another fee. Multiple serial killers, most infamously Amelia Dyer, would take advantage of this by killing the child once the parents were gone and continuing collecting the fee. Well, there you go. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. What a what a thing, yeah. baby farming. And I guess it was a thing across, because I, I, it sounds like a thing that, you know, it, it's in the book and it's in this movie. Mm-hmm. So it's, I, I guess I wonder if it, because Shelby is re- talking about it in, specifically in reference to the Victorian era. Yeah. I wonder if its inclusion in the Korean film indicates that it's it was also a thing during that time period in Korea. You know what I mean? Yeah, maybe. I mean, or I, if they're just keeping that plot point. I imagine that the the 
quote unquote need for this kind of thing right. would crop up anywhere you have like some kind of purity culture. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, in mo- in lots of places, especially up in, you know, in in the, the 30s or whatever this mm-hmm. was, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it seems feasible. It's just interesting. I'd never I'd never heard of it. Um and Patrick Wood said I wasn't expecting this erotic thriller to be structured like a heist movie, but I loved every second of it. It really is. Yeah, I really, I, I didn't think of it like that, like while we were discussing it, but it is structured kind of like a heist film. I think I did mention something about Ocean's Eleven. Did during you? Our I don't discussion. remember. I, there was, I, unless I'm thinking of something else, I could have swore that I, and it, not as like an overarching comparison, but like mm-hmm. one specific moment in the movie, I could have swore that I said you know, they do something Ocean's Eleven stuff. I don't remember what it is. Yeah, because there's but, a lot of like seeing something and then kind of like going back. Yeah. And seeing how we got there yeah. or seeing it yes. from a different perspective. Yeah, which heist movies do a lot. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there was some, like I said, I can't remember. I don't remember what the moment was, but I swear there was something that I was like, oh, like Ocean's Eleven. And but I don't remember what it was. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I agree. It is interesting. I was not expecting it either, but it was very, very cool. On Instagram, we had six votes for the movie and one for the book. Sharon Bowers 57 said, the book is better. Also watch the British miniseries. Also, what kind of film program gives a degree without screening The Godfather? Fair enough. A bad one. But I mean, that's not true because I did watch scenes from The God. It's not like Mm -hmm. I hadn't seen anything from The Godfather. We discussed elements of The Godfather. Uh, We talked about like the, the lighting techniques and that sort of thing, um, and certain other elements. I, we just didn't, you know. There are a lot of movies, spoilers, <laughs> and different, <laughs> different, uh, <laughs> different film uh, classes and stuff tend choose to focus on different things. Um, so that we, I don't remember all the films we watched. Right. It just happens that The Godfather wasn't one of the ones we watched in full. But I do know that we watched at least some well, scenes it, from it. It for sounds kind of similar to like, you know, I, I have. A literature degree but i haven't read every single novel because <laughs> you, you can't yeah um, but i've read a lot of excerpts from yeah. different novels yeah yeah and that's the same thing I think. like like there's plenty of movies that i've seen scenes from from film classes where we focus specific like i, I guarantee and i just don't remember because it's been like 10 years or whatever that we watched you know at least one of the scenes from the film and discussed either the editing or the lighting or mm-hmm. something we just didn't watch the entire three hour Godfather. Right. <laughs> like, and it, well, and I ideally with, you know, getting a degree like that, like a film degree or like a literature degree, the way that that kind of learning is structured is you're not watching a specific thing and then memorizing what that writer or director did specifically to create the art within that specific thing. Right. You're learning how to pick apart different pieces yeah, of art i mean the thing that we did the most is that you know and i assume this is true for most things most you know like film degrees and stuff like that or whatever um we would be studying a concept yes. a topic like uh you know uh uh low-key light or yeah like low-key lighting or whatever um and certain styles of lighting mm-hmm. and then we would watch a half dozen scenes yeah from different movies where we would discuss, you know, the different types of lighting they did and that sort of thing. Right. So it now wouldn't be like, let's watch all of the Godfather because this <laughs> is a great example of, lo- of 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 a certain type of lighting, which it is. But <laughs> or right. we could just watch this one five minute scene that gets you what you need to know 
about this concept that we're discussing. Right. And now you know what that concept is right. and you can apply it to a film that you've not right. seen. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, that's, I mean, we, there are, there were films that we watched all of, but it was much more watching moments from things. Mm -hmm. So I've seen lots of scenes from things, <laughs> uh, but not as much just like entire films because of my degree. But anyways, I, I've heard the British miniseries. Uh, it sounds like it might be interesting. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, this film is very good, though. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of uh, our listener polls, winner was the film with 13 votes to the books five uh, plus our one listener who was as torn as I was. There you go. All right. It's time now to learn a little bit about Kurt Vonnegut. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. Okay, so obviously there's a lot we could say about Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, this is more of like a brief biographical sketch, what I've got here. Uh, so Kurt Vonnegut Jr. was an American writer with a career spanning over 50 years. Uh, that career included 14 novels, three short story collections, five plays, and five nonfiction works with further collections being published posthumously. He was born in Indianapolis and was the youngest of three children. His family was of German heritage, but following the First World War, his parents uh, abandoned that aspect of their culture to show their American patriotism. And the, the resulting feeling of like disconnect that he had from that is a theme that made its way into many of his works, including the one that we're going to be talking about. Mm hmm uh, his family was initially well off, with his father inheriting an architecture firm and his mother coming from a family that owned a successful brewery. However, following Prohibition and the Great Depression, that financial security was destroyed and a young Vonnegut witnessed firsthand the devastating effects that that had on his parents. Another theme that makes his way, its way yes. into a lot of his work. I don't know a lot about Vonnegut. I've never read any Vonnegut at least maybe excerpts in high school yeah. or something or like an, a college English class maybe like an excerpt but I've never read like an entire Vonnegut I actually novel. think this might be my first Vonnegut maybe yeah um a lot of the classes that I took on this like era of literature focused more on poetry mm. so I haven't read as much fiction yeah from this era of writing but anyway uh, while in high school, Vonnegut was co-editor for his school newspaper, an experience he described as, quote, fun and easy. Afterwards, he enrolled at Cornell University, where he studied, where he studied biochemistry, but in a shocking twist for a writer, was indifferent towards his studies. I feel like we have that a lot in our, our biographies of writers. Mm -hmm. He eventually also wrote and edited for the, news, uh, the student newspaper there as well, penning a piece called Well, All Right, which argued against U.S. intervention in World War II. Hmm. He was a pacifist. I know. Yeah, I know, <laughs> know anti-war is a big yeah. thing. It's just, of the wars. Uh, yeah, I mean, of, <laughs> of, all, the wars. of all the wars. <laughs> That's maybe uh, the one that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but when the U.S. did enter the war, Vonnegut had dropped out of school and was no longer eligible for deferment, so he enlisted in the Army rather than waiting around to be drafted. I believe a lot of people did that. Yeah. You get to, at least, a, yeah, I, I believe you get a get better. Like a little bit of control over. Of what happens yeah. now. 
Um, however, his mother committed suicide in May of 1944, uh, and three months later, Vonnegut was sent to Europe, where he fought in the Battle of oh. Bulge and was taken prisoner. Um, he was sent to Dresden, where he lived in a slaughterhouse. Mm-hmm. Ah, yeah. 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 Uh, the city became the target of Allied forces and was heavily bombed. Uh, the prisoners of war were eventually evacuated, and Vonnegut was able to get to a repatriation camp and return to America. Um, after returning to the U.S., Vonnegut married his high school sweetheart and relocated to Chicago, where he studied anthropology at the University of Chicago and worked nights as a reporter. He left the university after his master's thesis was unanimously rejected <laughs> by the department. He's like, all right, screw you all, I'm out. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> I'm Kurt Vonnegut. I mean, honestly, (laughs) like, his whole biography could be titled, I'm Kurt Vonnegut, (laughs) fuck you. Yeah. Uh, For a time, he worked as a technical writer at General Electric, but after the publication of two short stories, quit his job and moved his family to Cape Cod to write full-time. The dream. His first novel, Player Piano, was published in 1952 and received generally positive reviews, uh, but didn't make, like, a huge splash. Um, He continued to struggle writing short stories and novels, but never really hitting it big. In the mid-1960s, he contemplated abandoning his writing career. Uh, But that changed with the publication of Slaughterhouse-Five in 1969. Um, Vonnegut embraced the fame and financial security that the novel brought uh, and was hailed as a hero of the burgeoning anti-war movement in the U.S. Uh, Despite this professional success, though, his home life was crumbling. Um, He and his wife divorced in 1971, and Vonnegut struggled with depression, and his next two novels, including the one that we're going to discuss, were critically panned. He remarried in 1979, and his popularity resurged following the publication of several satirical novels. Uh, Vonnegut still struggled with mental health issues, though, and attempted suicide in 1984. Um, However, he continued to write up until his death in 2007, with his final publication, a collection of essays, becoming a bestseller. Um, Writing on Vonnegut's impact following his death, the Los Los Angeles Times columnist Gregory Rodriguez said that the author will, quote, rightly be remembered as a darkly humorous social critic and the premier novelist of the counterculture. And Danita Smith of the New York Times dubbed Vonnegut the counterculture's novelist. Uh, The Science Fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame inducted Vonnegut posthumously in 2015. He also has an asteroid and a crater on Mercury named in his honor. Wow. In 2021, the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library in Indianapolis was designated as a literary landmark by the Literary Landmarks (laughs) Association. There you go. An aptly named association. Very aptly named. They're not mincing (laughs) words on that one. Very interesting. All right. Speaking of his critically panned novel, let's talk now a little bit about Slapstick or Lonesome No More. Now, if you two kids think you can perform some kind of miracle by putting your heads together, (laughs) I, for one, would like to see it. Tell me, how can I get America... Running again. Mm-hmm. 
right, Slapstick, subtitle Lonesome No More, is a 1976 novel by American author Kurt Vonnegut. The novel is presented as a meditation on death and on Vonnegut's relationship with his sister Alice, who died of cancer in 1958, uh, a mere two days after her husband also died in a train accident. Wow. Yeah. Uh, the novel was written shortly after the death of the author's uncle, and the idea for the entire book purportedly came to Vonnegut in a daydream he had on the plane on the way to the funeral, hmm. which is a fun fact what the prologue to the novel is all about. Oh. Uh, Slapstick is dedicated to Arthur Stanley Jefferson and Norval Hardy, a.k.a. Laurel and Hardy. And the title of the novel is a reference to the physical and situational comedy style that the duo employed. Vonnegut explains the title in the opening lines of the book's prologue, quote, This is the closest I will ever come to writing an autobiography. I have called it slapstick because it is grotesque situational poetry, like the slapstick film comedies, especially those of Laurel and Hardy, of long ago. It is what life feels like to me. The novel is in the form of an autobiography with a typical Vonnegut pattern of short snippets, often ending with a punchline of, of sorts. Huh. Thematically, the novel addresses religion and belief in the afterlife, with Vonnegut's take being satirical as he did not believe that traditional religions could cure loneliness or provide significant comfort. Yeah, he was, as far as I know, he was an atheist, yeah. a humanist, and I believe at one point he was like either recognized or was a member of the board of like the american humanist society mm. or he was like a they either either he was a part like a big part of that organization or they like gave him some sort of yeah thing i'm not i can't yeah, remember yeah you know, he was an atheist I, I didn't include it in the previous segment yeah. but that was one of the like falling out points with his wife was that mm. she converted to christianity That'll do and it. that was like a, a major friction point yeah. between them yeah the novel also addresses vonnegut's concern about the transitoriness of the modern lifestyle wherein people are forced to leave their familial and cultural roots and trade those for professional and financial security. Mm -hmm. uh, as I said earlier, Slapstick wasn't particularly well-reviewed. The New York Times bemoaned it as, quote, semi-literate. Wow. And Kirkus Reviews, I love this quote, Kirkus Reviews gave it a non-committal, quote, you'll either accord it a smile or a hi-ho-hum-in-the-bum, since reactions to Vonnegut are as immiscible as oil and rose water. Wow. A hi-ho-hum-in-the-bum. Um, so I'm not sure I'm not sure if that reception has improved That's such or a not. Weird, hmm, yeah, okay. it's a weird... Well, the, the hi-ho thing is a reference to the novel. Oh, okay. And that's like a repeated phrase okay. throughout it. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure if that like reception of slapstick has improved or not. Uh, this doesn't seem to be one of his best remembered novels. I had never even. I heard had of it. yeah, I had never heard of it either. And it sounds like that may not have been helped by the movie. Oh boy, was it not? You you read some interesting, fun uh, critic quotes, and I have some more. So let's get to that in our movie facts about slapstick of another kind. We don't understand. Well, there's such a thing as being too close. There is, especially for brothers and sisters. You see, it's... <clears throat> uh, Caleb, tell the children about the incest taboo. 
Slapstick of Another Kind is a 1982 film written and directed by Stephen Paul, who is a producer of Baby Geniuses, Super Babies, Baby Geniuses 2, that's like Super Babies colon Baby Geniuses 2, Ghost in the Shell, Tekken, bunch of other movies. He has like 100 producer credits. He has also written the entirety of the Baby Geniuses cinematic universe. It's the worst thing you've ever <laughs> said to me. I actually don't know if he's written all of them, but he has a lot of writing credits for Baby Geniuses thing. For my own sanity, I have to hope he is the writer of all of the Baby Geniuses cinematic universe, because if he's not, that means there's even more than is on his credits. And I cannot (laughs) I cannot have that. (laughs) The film stars Jerry Lewis, Madeline Kahn, Marty Feldman, John Abbott, Jim Backus, Samuel Fuller, Merv Griffin, Pat Morita, Virginia Graham and Ben Frank. So. Some names in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jerry Lewis, Madeline Kahn, Marty Feldman, Pat Morita, uh, famously in uh, Mr. Miyagi from the mm-hmm. uh, Karate Kid mm-hmm. movie. Uh, movies, uh, among other people, obviously. But yeah. Uh, so yeah, they had, they had some people in the, in this film. Uh, the film does not have a Rotten Tomatoes or a Metacritic score, but it does have a 9% on the Rotten Tomatoes audience score. Nine percent and a two point six out of ten on IMDb, which I believe makes it the lowest rated film we maybe have ever done on the show. Mm. Potentially to this point, it was nominated for one award, a Razzie for worst actor for Jerry Lewis, <laughs> which will be contradicted by uh, one of the critics' <laughs> notes later, which I thought is interesting. Uh, I could not find any box office numbers. Uh, There's very little information about this movie because it was a bomb uh, in every sense of the word. Everybody hated it. I feel like this movie got buried. Yes. Um, It got re-edited as well. It it released initially in 1982, and and then it got re-edited and re-released in 1984. And Mm -hmm. I believe the 1984 version is the one that most of the critic reviews are from and stuff, but... Yes. So uh, this is a fun. There was very few facts. So I included basically everything I could find. Uh, Martial artist Peter Kwong. And I don't even know who that is. He he, I found this on Wikipedia. He did not have a link on Wikipedia to a page, but it was in the Wikipedia article Uh, made one of his earliest appearances in this film, playing an astronaut in a flying fortune cookie. Oh, dear Lord. So, oh, just wait till we hear some of these critic reviews here in a minute. The original 1982 cut of the film featured a score by Michael Legrand, but then when the movie was re-edited and re-released in 1984, that was replaced with a more science fiction-laced score by uh, Morton Stevens of the Hawaii Five-0, the 1968 version, fame, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, there's a making of video on YouTube that I found that's 24 minutes long. I kind of clicked through it, and it seemed very boring, so I did not watch it. <laughs> Uh, So, getting into the critical reviews, this is my favorite thing that I found about this movie. Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert panned the film in their show at the movies when it came out in 1984. Siskel described it as, quote, the single worst movie of 1984, end quote, saying it was shockingly bad, insensitive, cruel, boring, unfunny, and cheaply made. He summed all that up by proposing that film encyclopedias, quote, ought to have an entry called Bad Movie, and the illustration ought to be a still photo from Slapstick of Another Kind. The best thing that could ever happen to this film is that it never be shown anywhere, end quote. (laughs) Ebert concurred, (laughs) describing the film as offensive, unsavory, and painful. 
However, Siskel and Ebert did not mention the film on their worst of 1984 list. So I think maybe it was so bad that they... (laughs) (laughs) Siskel took his own advice and was like, never mention this again. Bury it. Uh, In... Uh, uh, Millennium's End, new essays on the work of Kurt Vonnegut, Kevin Alexander Boone wrote, quote, the film circumvents everything that is intelligent about Vonnegut's fiction, end quote, and that it is one of the worst adaptations of Vonnegut's work. Leonard Malton, another well-known critic, praised the performance of Jerry Lewis, so encounter to the Razzies. Now, the Razzies are kind of dumb. They are very often, there's like, like, there's plenty of people that get nominated for Razzies that don't deserve it. It, it. A lot of times it also is like very sexist and weird. Like yeah. the Razzies are weird. I'm not a big fan of the Razzies as like a general concept. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they often, and they're, I, cause I remember there was something that we either talked about on this show or something where somebody was nominated for a Razzie and it's like, that wasn't whatever. Yeah. But anyways, so he was nominated for Razzie for worst performance, but Leonard Malton disagrees and he prof- uh, praised a performance of Jerry Lewis and Sam Fuller, but described the film as appalling. And finally, Nathan Rabin, writing for the AV Club, called the film, quote, a crass violation of everything Vonnegut stood for, end quote. Oh, I'm so excited. (laughs) So that's, uh, yeah, that's something else. I thought that was very interesting. That's all the facts I have. But I, like I said, I was like, oh, I don't have anything interesting. And then I found all the the critics (laughs) Critics uh, quotes about this movie, and I was like, "Oh boy, that's fun! Can't wait!" So it looks like we're in for a, uh, a good, better, bad. Yeah, bad I was going to say, I feel like we're going to be doing a little side episode yep. of Good, Better, uh, Bad. Bad does seem like kind of what we're doing here. Uh, so yeah, uh, we uh, this is a patron request. We did want to mention that uh, this is from Jeff Niederhofer requested this film. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> We'll see how we feel about it after we watch the movie. And Katie, if the folks at home would like to watch the film, where can they do that? Oh, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> I actually have an additional note on that, but go ahead. I, I have an, I have some <laughs> some history here. So you can check with your local library. They might have. Or your local one. video rental store. Probably but might. I feel like you're hard-pressed to find this one. So this was a patron request, as you said. Um, and it has actually been on our list for quite a while. Because I could not find this movie anywhere. Oh. Uh, it was not available to stream anywhere. It was not available to purchase anywhere. I found some clips of it on YouTube, but I couldn't tell if it was the whole okay, thing or not. Okay, that was my additional note, was when I was looking, uh, when I was scrolling through YouTube, um, I was able to find, when I found that documentary, uh-huh. I saw clips that said Slapstick of Another Kind, part one of whatever, yeah. which usually indicates that it's like the whole movie in, you know, 10 minute chunks or whatever. I don't know if it's all up there or yeah. not. The movie is short, and I believe it said like part one of nine which would track because that's like 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I believe the film's like 80 minutes or something. So it might, you might be able to find it all on YouTube. So I basically, what I did, uh, I use, I use an app to search for where stuff is streaming. So I set myself up a little alert <laughs> for this movie. <laughs> Fantastic. And one day, uh, a couple months ago, 
I, I got a little ping and it was like available to rent on Amazon <laughs> for 99 cents. And I was like, put it yeah, on the schedule go. right going now. It's going on the out. schedule. Um, so you can rent it on Amazon for about a dollar or you can buy a digital copy on Amazon for $3 should you care to own this film. Fantastic. <laughs> Amazing. So, yeah, uh, you can watch it on Amazon fairly cheaply, uh, in America at least. In yeah. the U.S., we don't know for sure anywhere else. But other places, check on YouTube. It seems like maybe the whole movie is mm. there. I don't know if it's an edited version of any sort. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, with all the talk of how offensive and awful this movie is, maybe YouTube, the version on YouTube doesn't have everything in it. I don't know. We'll see. But you could try YouTube uh, if you wanted to watch it, or you can just listen to us talk about it. Either way. All right, that's going to do it for this prequel episode. We'll be back in one week's time talking about slapstick of another kind. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Until that time, guys, gals, non-binary pals, and everybody else. Keep reading books. Keep watching movies. And, and keep, keep being awesome. awesome.